Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize in Literature for having, quote, created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. For the first time, the Nobel Committee recognized poetry and music together as worthy of the prize. Patti Smith has put poetry to a punk rock beat since the 70s, writing lyrics inspired by Jackson Pollock, Isabel Eberhardt, William Burroughs, and even Johnny Carson. Colin recently spoke with the very funny Patti Smith during a Mark Twain House Mark My Words event at Emanuel Congregational Church in Hartford. They talked about her work, her life, her spirit, and how she feels about Dylan's prize. As I was thinking about you coming to our city, having now read how important it is to you, I began to have a lot of anxiety that you might have an unsatisfactory coffee experience. Oh, no, no, I, I'm not a coffee snob. You know. You're not? No, I, I, I'll go from, you know, uh, Mexican, special Mexican coffee beans grown uh, in the mountains entwined with orchids to uh, deli coffee. You know, they're pretty much um, there with both. But it's your drug of choice. Do you think it actually is part of your writing process, your creative process? Is coffee lighting up neurons uh, uh, for you? No, I don't think that it's the actual coffee that yeah. does it. It's the ritual. Because I don't really <laughs> care. I mean, sometimes, like, I don't even drink the coffee. I like to smell it, have it by me. Like when my mother quit smoking cigarettes, mm -hmm. she still kept the pack. Right. Neck, you know, just to sort of, just hanging out with her. So it's part of a ritual. Well, fate has intervened to provide me with my first serious question. We're here to talk about literature and writing. This guy, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, Bob Dylan, uh, got the Nobel Prize in literature. How did you feel when you read that or heard that? Well, I was very happy for him. I mean, the Nobel Prize is, you know, really one of the highest, perhaps the highest accolade uh, one can get in literature. And when you think of the people, Thomas Mann and, and uh, Albert Camus and Herman Hesse and on and on, uh, it's beautiful company to uh, keep. And certainly he has given us within his songs uh, one of the most important bodies of songs in the American songbooks. Not everybody loved it, right? Not everybody thinks that's literature. Uh, make the case that it's literature. It's not my case. Ask the Nobel people. It's not. <laughs> I don't. I'm not. I'm not interested in making a case for it. He gave us a great body of work, and that's how they identified it. Mm. They identified it as being, you know, an important, influential contribution to the American songbook. I mean, I think there are some people who think poetry lives behind ivy-covered walls, that it's something that lives in academia. In other cultures, I mean, supposedly when Neruda would come and read, you know, farmers would put down their plows and come to hear him. There is a sort of a nice idea, anyway, that the, the words that are in people's heads, whether they're your words or Bob Dylan's, they can understand that that's the same as Wisława Zimborska or some other poet maybe they've, they've never heard of but, but might seek out now. Well, they're only the same because of the quality of the work. Mm -hmm. You know, they might not content be the same, but when you think of Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, one of the most beautiful love songs ever written, or Desolation Row, or Chimes of Freedom, 
they certainly stand with some, some of our great poems, some of our great anthems. In your writing, and I think especially in Just Kids, there's, there's a lot about sort of the kindling of the imagination. I think you might even use the phrase the harvesting of imagination. Do you think everybody has access potentially to huge amounts of imagination? Does it, is everybody given the same amount when they're born? Or is, I mean, is the focus what's different or the capacity to imagine? Well, I mean, I wouldn't even, you know, presume to know, say that I knew the answer to that, except I believe everyone has a creative impulse. Mm -hmm. And how that manifests goes from individual to individual. With some people, it might be to produce the most wondrous loaf of bread, or they might be very good with in gardening, or they might be very good with children, or have, you know, the mind of John Nash, or be able to give mathematical language to the abstract. But everyone has a creative impulse. But I think when one talks about genius, that's a whole different subject. I don't think that everyone obviously isn't a genius. Everyone isn't going to produce, you know, a, a Rembrandt or a Brancusi or write the glass bead game. But everyone can do something. But genius really um, belongs, it, it comes, I think, from a whole other level. Just Kids is also, I think, about artistic focus, what some people call flow. I mean, I, there are so many scenes where you and Robert Maplethorpe are almost lost in the creative act. Five hours can go by. Twelve. Twelve hours can go by. Is that discipline? Or is there something that you luxuriate in when you're doing that? Well, I think uh, discipline, for instance, most mornings I get up around 7.30 and I write usually from 8 to 10 in the morning. I do it almost every day unless I'm traveling. That's discipline working sometimes all day long and into the night, then you're moving into madness and uh, <laughs> obsession. And um, I think that that's sort of like um, the more mystical part of the work ethic. But uh, certainly, all the work that we do has to come from a core of discipline. And I think it's very important for every, well, all of us need to have some kind of discipline. Or, Does it feel uh, good when you do it? Well, it's exhausting, mm. but it also feels very good to sit and write for two hours and come out and feel like you've done something good. Because you can work all night and wind up losing contact, losing the thread. But sometimes you'll get your best work done when you're very clear. There's, there's no real right answer to that. M-Train comes back again and again to this house. I like your socks. I well, can't <laughs> I was, you know, you're coming to my city, I was nervous about socks and I was nervous about coffee. I mean, Patty Smith is here. We don't want to get those two things No, wrong. I'm not so judgmental. In fact, I mean, look, look where we are. It's nice. It's, it's awesome. I mean, look at that. Most of you probably know about that, right? It's like, it's a, okay, it's a Tiffany and it's like maybe the last big, for, it's not the last big, but it's a big one. And... Uh, <laughs> But why I love it isn't just because it's made of thousands and thousands and thousands of tiny bits of glass and that it's Tiffany. I love it because of the um, subject, the sower. I, I think that the sower is so beautiful. Anyway.
sorry. I got off the track. I'm it's sorry. perfect. It's perfect, actually. And by the way, Noam Chomsky never noticed how nice this place was. We could have had him in a Denny's for all he knew. You know? <laughs> um, you're talking about space right now. You're talking about space, place, physical environment. It's a lot in your writing. And certainly in M-Train, you come back and again, again and again. It's kind of a love letter to this Rockaway house, this kind of... It's kind of a Charlie Brown Christmas tree um, house. <laughs> it's exact, uh, you're exactly right. And, or the little um, uh, Walt Disney house that has two giant skyscrapers put in on the other side. And it's like, oh my goodness, I'm so little. And, you know. so, so what is this house to you? What, what, first of all, how is it doing? How is Alamo doing these days? My little house, if you haven't read the book, it's uh, I fell in love with this little ramshackle bungalow in Rockaway Beach because I don't know how to drive and I love the ocean and it was a block and a half from the sea and a block and a half from the subway. I, I, I saved all my money and I was able to procure it and I bought it three weeks before Sandy and, um, and it was in such dilapidated shape that they wouldn't give me insurance for it until I fixed it up and Sandy came and gave it another few uh, nudges, so it got quite damaged, but we fixed it up. It took two years, uh, took about a ton of sand out of the yard, and, and it was all tilted like this, but now it's my little house, my little writer's house. It, it spoke to you somehow, and this yep. is a very unprepossessing house when you first saw it. it. It really couldn't have been less prepossessing, probably, except that it possessed you somehow. Do you know what it was? Do you have a theory? Yeah. yeah. Well, because it reminded me of how I grew up, you know, it had a, a tiny yard that was all overgrown, and I like overgrown yards. I don't like things mowed and perfect. And it just, it had an, a special energy. And I love the sea. I like living like that. You know, it's like a, an illuminated tramp or a beach bum living in it. So, my kind of place. I wondered if it also reminded you, and forgive me if I'm wrong about this, the way you write about it is a little bit the way you write about, is it 160 Hall Street? Is that the address in Brooklyn? The oh. first place that you and Robert Maplethorpe have. There's a little bit in the writing about these two places of similarity. Does that make any sense to you? Does that? Only that the Hall Street was like our, it's probably just love because they're nothing alike, except they were both pretty much in bad shape yeah. when uh, we got them, and Hall Street was in particularly bad shape, and Robert cleaned it all up. He did it all himself. He painted it, he cleaned it. It had all kinds of syringes, dirty syringes in the, in the stove, and like, like helter-skelter blood acid stuff <laughs> all over the walls, and I was just a South Jersey girl. I had never seen nothing like that, so he cleaned it all up. But if I talk about them both fondly, it's just probably because I have beautiful memories attached to Hall Street, and I'm making my memories at the Alamo. There's also that sense of transformation, though, taking yes, something. Yes, you're right. Yeah. And that seems like a very attractive thing to you. I mean, probably if someone showed you a beautiful place that you really couldn't improve, you couldn't do anything to, I wonder if that would be interesting to you. In well, I wouldn't mind, but uh, no, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> No, it's no, it's really. Um, I think of more internal transformation because I'm really messy. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, <laughs> it was beautiful to see the transformation of the Alamo, but I imagined it. But it was really the workers that I had that did everything. Mm -hmm. In terms of creative impulse, 
I wouldn't know how to lay a Mexican tile floor or fix a chimney or I wouldn't know how to do any of that stuff, but they did everything. And they did it slowly on their own time. And uh, in fact, my workers got so into it, it was like four guys, that I just got like a little refrigerator and a little stove from Sears and it was white. And so I left and I had to go somewhere and then I came back and I went in my house and there was a little Sears refrigerator and stove, but they were black. And I said, what happened to my white stove and my white refrigerator? And they said, oh, Miss Patty, it just aesthetically, it didn't look good. So <laughs> they, they just ordered me different ones. I, I, so they did the transforming. I hopefully do the transformation process as a writer. But that is what writing is, right, in some oh, ways? Oh, absolutely. It's labor. And beautiful, too. Yeah, it is. I mean, you're taking an empty page, you're transforming it, you're taking reality, you're transforming it by writing words about it, right? And also transforming and creating out of nothing. You know, it's, it's just, I just love the process of writing. Every, I have since I was a child. I loved learning to write. I loved holding the pen for the first time. I loved writing, learning cursive, and I still write everything by hand. I love the act of writing. Colin's been talking to Patty Smith at Emanuel Congregational Church in Hartford about a career that took her from South Jersey to the punk rock scene of 1970s Manhattan. Much of it spent with Robert Mablethorpe. The song you're hearing as we go out of this segment is the memorial song Patty Smith wrote after Mablethorpe's death. Little Wants to fly away If I cup my hand Could I make him stay Little emerald soul Little emerald eye Little emerald soul Must you say goodbye We're back. This is The Colin McEnroe Show. Today you're listening to an interview between Colin and iconic rocker and poet Patti Smith. She was recently in town for a Mark Twain House Mark My Words event at Emanuel Congregational Church in Hartford. Here's more Colin and the very funny Patti Smith. You're funny. You mean people are laughing here already. <laughs> and and there, are, there are moments in these books that are just improbably hilarious. I mean, how many people laugh out loud reading these books? I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'll tell you just a... Um, uh, one one moment I laughed. It's in Just Kids where you get this role, I think at La Mama, and they want you to shoot up on stage. And I think you write something, they said, they assumed because of the way I looked that I did drugs. And and you have, well, you should go complete the, complete no, the well, thought. I, well, it's because they had typecast me as a speed freak who was into Brian Jones. And, you know, I'm supposed to, you know, it was a little, I'm supposed to come on stage with, like, a boat neck shirt and my hair all messed up going, Brian Jones is dead, man. Brian Jones is dead. And then I'm supposed to shoot up speed. And, and then the guy hands me, you know, a syringe, and he said, oh, you know, just, you know, just draw water. It's just water in there. I don't know. He was telling. I said, I'm not putting that thing in my, excuse me. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. It's all right. Sorry. Um, Excuse me. I, I, I mean, I was horrified because I have like a needle phobia. In any event, 
the next thing I was in, he typecast me to be, you know, have a girlfriend. When I read the play, I just thought, yeah, okay, they're friends, they're girlfriends. And he said, uh, you know, you know, like your girlfriend, you know, and, and then he finally, I got the idea and I said, oh, I'm sorry, um, I'll try to act, but you know, I'm not really a lesbian, so um, I don't really have a girlfriend that I do that stuff with. And he said, you're not a drug addict, you're not a lesbian, what are you? And the other one I want you to tell a little bit is the story, I think it's in uh, Cartagena, it's in Spain, you're in, the, you're in a little town, and this guy sell, wants to sell you a lottery ticket. You know, it's really funny, yeah. no one has ever mentioned that section, and in fact, it was even suggested to me that that section wasn't really, oh, no. that it could, but it's one of my favorite sections, so thanks for noticing it. <laughs> okay. It's sort of like my, um, uh, what's the Humphrey Bogart, oh, the treasure of Sierra Madre yeah. moment. Nah, it's just this, this like guy, I knew he was hustling me. We were at a truck stop called the Juanita truck stop or something. And, and there was across, another Juanita across the street. Yeah, across, but that's where the diesel trucks went and the regular cars and stuff. So they were exactly the same, Juanita one and Juanita two. And the food was really bad. It was like warm beans and some kind of weird sausage, but it, it was okay. But this guy comes in and he wanted to sell this like limp lottery ticket that looked like it was like, you know, in cabbage, the first leaves, it was just like limp. <laughs> and he's trying to sell it to me for like five euros and it's like a euro lottery ticket. And I'm like, all right, all right. He comes to me and everybody's like laughing and giggling and going, don't buy it, don't buy it. But I bought it. Then we got back on the bus and everybody's like making fun of me because I bought this lottery ticket and it didn't win or nothing. But I was really happy, and the reason I was happy was because he, I was sort of feeling lonely. The guy comes in, and there's all these people, but he singles me out to be his pigeon. And I was like, I felt like a privileged pigeon. Because I really didn't mind, you know? And then I paid him, and as soon as I paid him, he got something deep. He didn't even try to pretend, like, leave. He, the guy was hungry. so. I got to feel like he chose me. I, I felt like the chosen one, and he got a meal, and everybody was happy. I, 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 I think we've all had that experience, particularly if you're in a foreign country where you're worried that you're being taken advantage of, right? Did that guy just shortchange me? I don't really know the currency. I love that idea of just play your role. I never worry about yeah, that. Yeah, play your role. I never worry about that. If, like, something, like... You know, I put some money and maybe every once in a while somebody takes money out of a room or it doesn't happen too often. I always figure that person probably really needed it. You know, it's just like you have to like, you have to have some sense of humor and sort of just like go along with all the rhythms of travel. And in the movie of this, this scene can happen without me, without you to do that thing too, you know? The scene exactly. has got to have a pigeon in it, yeah. Exactly, as we, we created together what happened at this moment. I couldn't have rid it if he didn't induce it to happen. Mm -hmm. And it, it's also, I think that scene is followed, speaking of pigeons, with perhaps the funniest scenes of bird sex that I've ever, uh, <laughs> you, have, you have birds conjugating right okay. outside your 
I hope that was the right word. That's the right word, right? I, it worked in that circumstance. I don't, conjugation, I, 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 if, yes. if there's an ornithologist here, it might not be letter perfect, but... Um. It was like a gold massacre. I don't know what they were doing, but they seemed happy afterwards. But there was <laughs> feathers everywhere. It was just like, you know, it was like a plethora of feathers. So... <laughs> So given how funny you are, it made me wonder, do you like, are there any stand-up comedians that, that you like? Do you, does that whole, does that part of the performing arts intrigue you at all? Well, I, used, I always loved Johnny Carson, and I really, really, I really love Chris Farley. And um, yeah, Amy Schumer's really funny. Not even, I just like funny stuff. Mm -hmm. One of the funniest things I've seen in a long time was... Uh, they had that Saturday night, you know, 100th reunion or whatever it was, which I thought wasn't very good, except Kristen, <laughs> Kristen Wiig and um, Bradley Cooper played something called the Californians, mm -hmm. where, um, um, and he was the pool boy. Um, it was stupid for me to bring it up because I, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't even, I can't even, uh, I can't even uh, uh, duplicate it, except... I just, it just made me laugh so much. Laughter is great. I mean, anything that makes you laugh. I love when people laugh. I really, when I was younger, I really thought of going, going into comedy. I wanted, one of my big goals was, was to be on the Johnny Carson show and that I'd be really funny and that he would um, let me take over the show when he retired. <laughs> But I was never allowed on the show. I was too controversial. Yeah. I wrote letters. I said I would wear a dress, that I would compromise. <laughs> but I never got on it, but I loved him. He didn't know you were funny. No, I guess not. Um, Just thought I was bad. <laughs> people read these books, and I, I know from talking to people <laughs> that one of the things that they love is the notion that Patti Smith does whatever she wants. If she has an inspiration, she follows it. And I think there is this tremendous sense, anyway, that reading about you, people think that's what it's like to be free and self-actualized. Do you feel utterly free to do whatever you want? I, I mean, I, I'm, I have responsibilities. I have people I take care of, and I have to make a living. But yeah, I do. But I mean, it came at a price. You know, I, I was married in uh, 1980. I had my children, uh, we, I had our children. You know, when you're uh, a wife and mother, your life is, uh, revolves ar around your family and the time that you can spend on the work that you want to do privately. With the death of my husband and my children grown, I don't have that um, family-centric life. And so, yeah, I can do whatever I want, but that kind of freedom does sometimes come at a cost. I often talk with my son and daughter and we talk about what a great life we all have because we do have a great life and I have a lot of opportunities. And every once in a while we, we just almost in unison say, well, we'd give it all up if we could just have dad back again. Because when he was around, he, he was our king and we would be deferring to what he wanted us to be doing. Yeah, but I did my time. I did my time as, as a wife and mother happily, and now I just uh, sort of roam around as I please. But do, do you think that people sometimes tell themselves stories about why they can't do things that they want to do? 
I, I can't possibly just pick up and run off and do all that. Well, I mean, I think that we have to make uh, decisions and priorities and sometimes compromises in life. When I had my children, no, I couldn't pick up and go almost anywhere. You know, we raised our children ourselves. We didn't have babysitters and nannies and stuff. I did everything. I did the cooking and the cleaning and not that great, but I did all that stuff. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I didn't feel like I was sacrificing or in prison. I love my family. You just have to like what you're doing. And if you can't sacrifice happily, then you shouldn't do it. Sacrifice is only meaningful if you do it happily. Otherwise, oh, thanks. <laughs> Otherwise, I was just going to say it's just complaining. <laughs> just Kids is such an incredible evocation of young, not just you and Robert Maplethorpe, but this mass, this generation, or multiple generations of creative, daring people who are willing to and maybe live in pretty you know, sketchy circumstances at times for the chance to pursue art, for the chance to, to do what they really want to do. If you walk around the East Village or Chelsea now, it seems like that's gone or that's a vanishing thing. That, I mean, when you walk around the places where you were, in those years, the years depicted in, in Just Kids. Does it make you feel like that, that frontier is gone, that possibility is gone? I mean, for me, that I don't see the same frontier as I did when I was younger, but every generation translates things for themselves. But it's well, what not I'm saying is, if you, if you wanted to be Patti Smith now, if you wanted to live that life, you are Patti Smith. <laughs> good point, good point. Bad phrasing. If, if another person, if a young person wanted to be her generation's equivalent of Patti Smith, it would be really hard to do in New York City. New York City is gentrified and expensive, and it just, you would have to do that somewhere else. Well, yeah, but the thing is, I'm not from New York City. I lived in South Jersey. I had to leave South Jersey. Why? Not to become an artist, number one. Number one, to get a job. And there were no jobs in 1967 in South Jersey. There were no jobs for me in Philadelphia. So I came to New York and I got a job and I could live cheaply. So you have to think of it that way. It wasn't like I was coming to New York City, the Mecca. I was going where I could get a job or I was going where I could afford to live. So maybe there's like new places that people can go. They can develop, you know, they can. <laughs> You know, in, in Detroit, Philadelphia, Newark, there's a lot of cities that need to grow. They need artistic expression. They need young people with courage. They need that kind of energy. And, um, but that's up to new generations, how they, how they deal with these things. I always trust, I pin my faith on them. They'll figure it out. So the, among the revelations in M-Train, is are not only that you know who Pat Sajak is, but that you have some very strong TV viewing preferences. <laughs> and we have to talk about a few of these, particularly the killing. The killing is like, I wouldn't call it an obsession exactly, but it, you know, you're a very serious fan of that show to the point of getting to be on it. Oh, I would have loved watching it for the rest of my life. I, <laughs> I loved Lyndon and Holder, you yeah. know, it's just, I love my detectives. Yeah and that's why I watch these shows. I love how their mind works. To me, it's like I said it in the book, but they're like another kind of poet. 
because, you know, they have all the stuff, red herrings, it's like they have bad lines and lines that sort of work and lines that are like uh, too imaginative or too surreal for this particular scenario. And then they discard all the crap and they come to the punchline, the great line. And what is that? They get their man. You know, they solve the crime. And watching how their minds work, it's like watching the creative process. There's also something about the detective duo, too. So you like the killing, which is, as you say, Holder and Lyndon. Obviously, there's a long tradition, whether it's Watson and Holmes or you know, yep. Wolf and Archie Goodwin. I wonder, I mean, once again, not to overanalyze or, or map too much from one thing onto another, but there's this rather touching description in, in Just Kids about how you and Robert Maplethorpe kind of would always take turns being one thing or another. If one, one of you was lazy, the other one had to be industrious. If one of you was sick, the other one had to be well. If one of you was, um, there was that sense that, and you could flop back and forth between those two roles, but there's this sense of the complementary personalities. And I'm wondering if that's part of why you like these detective things too. It's I, about- I, I never thought of it, but that's, that's nice. Uh, also, I mean, Robert and I, we started, we used to call that well, it's too silly. But we had, um, for instance, financially, sometimes when we'd want to see a show at a museum, for instance, you know, we didn't have enough money for us both to go into the Modern or both to go into the Whitney. And it was like $2 back then. But when you only make $55 a week or something, $2 twice, it's $4, you know. So we would take turns of who would go into the museum and then the other person would wait outside and then you'd tell them all about it. Mm -hmm. I will never forget really being in the Whitney and I think it was Kandinsky or something, I don't know what I was seeing, but it was my turn. And they have that trapezoidal window. And I looked out and I saw Robert out there smoking a cigarette, looking up. And I went out and uh, we were talking and he was telling me, someday I'm gonna have a show there at the Whitney. And at the end of his life, he did. Mm. And, um, and we had also his memorial uh, at the Whitney. And I remember after saying my piece at the memorial, singing a little song, going back to that window, and I could still imagine him looking out there, looking up, imagining himself in, in, uh, in the Whitney. But he got there, and more. And more. You get to be on two of these shows. I was. You should tell the story. The, the first one was a was it a Law and Order? Uh, law and Order Criminal Intent. Tell, tell the story about how how you were. Too, <laughs> tell the story about how you were almost a little too big when you first tried to do the. And, well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, well, first of all, the other thing that I I noticed in this that I had said was I got two cameos in two of my favorite shows, both of them when they were being canceled. So. <laughs> So I think it's more like, that's how I got on. I, I mean, they didn't ask me to be on when the show was successful, but I was really happy. Anyway, I had to play this um, Cleo Alexander, a professor of antiquities at Columbia University. I had to talk to, I had a little scene with Vincent, and we had to talk about, um, you know, the labyrinth and uh, the golden thread, and so, I had never done TV, and I, but I had done plays, and I know you're supposed to project, like I'm projecting now. And 
So Vincent is sitting there and he goes, hey, what can you tell me about the labyrinth? And I go, the labyrinth. <laughs> One of my favorite stories in mythology. And Vincent goes, oh, good. Uh, Patty, let me tell you a story of something Stanley Kubrick told me. And so he tells me this story of how, you know, he had auditioned for Stanley Kubrick and he wanted to do really good. And I suppose he was also quite effusive. So Stanley says, uh, Vincent, um, and then he tells him, you take your emotions, cut them in half, and then pull back from that. <laughs> and so, you know, so Vincent very, very generously and very subtly gave me a lesson in restraint. And what was cool is when I had to do the killing, I had it down then, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, was, I, I had to play a neurosurgeon in that one and uh, went up in the world <laughs> from... Uh, an uncooperative neurosurgeon at that. Yeah, an uncooperative neurosurgeon. But in any event, it was a valuable lesson and um, I'm ready for my next next role. <laughs> You've been listening to a pre-recorded interview between Colin and Patti Smith. Patti has a long history as a poet, a rocker, and an all-around great performer. As we go out of this segment, you'll hear Farewell Real, a song Patti wrote shortly after losing her husband Fred Smith and brother Todd. So darling, farewell, I will be well and then I will be fine. The children will rise strong and happy be sure. Cause your love flows and the con still grows and God only knows. We're only given as much as the heart can endure. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bob Dylan. And now, back to Colin. In all of your work, I feel like we're never, ever far from spirit. You know, I mean, you write frankly about your religious upbringing and directly about Robert Maplethorpe's religious upbringing, but all the way through, I feel like we're never far from some version of spirit or the question of what does this mean? What does it mean to be here? What does it mean that I left that book in, in a toilet stall and somebody took that rock away from me at customs? What does it mean? Are these signs important or are we kind of living randomly? It seems to me over and over again that's there. Can you speak directly about I'm I'm very nosy about people's spiritual lives. I mean, I believe. I'm not saying that in a bragging way. I'm saying it in a grateful way. I think part of it was because at a very young age, my mother gave me God. She, she taught me about God and prayer, unfettered by any religion. You know, and the expansiveness that it offered have, has continued to give me space to go anywhere uh, mentally, you know, or uh, creatively, or... I do, and I, I guess really, I don't really know how to talk about it except to say, I've, I've, had re, I've been in religions, I've studied the scriptures, and I've studied the holy books of many religions. And in the end, you know, there's beauty in everything, but 
I just don't want to be fettered by man-made rules and regulations. I got my own rules and regulations I can make, you know? I mean, I, th I think that systems and organizations, when it, the, whether it's governments or religions, you know, they're good for people. People need structure. But um, I'm not a person that needs structure. I really thrive without structure. But I'm also a responsible person. So I'm not anarchistic. I don't know if that answers anything. I just, in the end, I just try to be a good person, be happy, and not be too much of a one. That's it. <laughs> So that's about it. <laughs> there you go, quoting scripture again. Um, the, um... I mean, I, I don't really know how to answer your question. I can say when I ca came in here and saw the sower, I felt deeply for that. Mm -hmm. And I felt deeply for the idea of that, for, you know, to sow seeds, whether they're seeds of you know, something where an apple and the apple grows and people can partake of it, or seeds of knowledge, or, you know, I, I just find, I found it beautiful. And I don't really define those feelings, I just uh, feel them. But I think art creates moments of transcendence anyway, for the artist and for the consumer of the art. I'll give you an example from your own life. I started reading people's accounts of you. A lot of people talk about this poetry reading you gave in 1993 in Central Park. It's like 100 degrees out. and the place is full. And people say they describe that as a moment of transcendence. Well, I can tell you what it was like from my perspective. Okay. <laughs> I hadn't performed in front of people for probably 16 years or something. My husband brought me there and my brother was there. They knew I hadn't been on stage in front of people for years. I thought it would be a small gathering and it with thousands of people. And I went on the stage, and I was going to recite the lyrics of People of the Power, and I got on the stage, and I froze. I couldn't even speak because I was so emotional, and I really felt like crying. I felt like running away. And then I felt all the people as if they came in me and reminded me that they were with me, and took a breath, and then I got my thing back, you know, because I usually I feel very much in command when I'm performing. But it was really the love from the people that allowed me to transcend a very, very difficult moment. And that's the perfect place for me to end my interrogation of you. I love that story, so we'll <laughs> stop there. I've been not monopolizing you all evening. <laughs> How are we going to do this other thing? How does this other thing work? All right, so, okay. I'll sing you a little song. I'm hoping that my guitar's in tune, but if it isn't, I don't know how to tune it, so we'll have to live with that. <laughs> and if it's horribly out of tune and there's a musician here, then come, come and tune it, okay. Since you've talked so much about the writer's process, but also the idea of sacrifice and all the difficulties of being an artist. I wrote this little song called Blakey and Year. I was having a tough time when I, when I wrote this song, feeling a little unappreciated and, uh, you know, sorry for myself. And then I thought about William Blake 
And William Blake was such a beautiful writer. He was a poet. He wrote songs. He was a political activist. He championed children's rights, uh, women's rights, but he was a complete casualty of the Industrial Revolution. He was forgotten in his lifetime. He died in poverty. But all through that, William Blake did his work, and that's what we have to do. So. So disposed toward a mission yet unclear, advancing pole by pole, marching breathed into my ear. Obey this simple code. When road was paved in gold, when road was just a road Am I Blakey in year Such a woeful schism The pain in our existence Was not as I envisioned Boots that tramp from track to Worn down to the soul When road was paved in gold When road was just a road Am I Blakey in year Temptation yet a hiss just a shallow spear robed in cowardice brace yourself for bitter flack for a life divine a labyrinth of riches never shall unwind the tears that bind the pilgrim sack are stitched into the Blakeyan back. So throw off your stupid cloak. Embrace all that you fear. This joy will conquer all despair. In my Blakeyan year. So throw up your stupid cloak. Embrace all that you fear. Cause joy will conquer all despair. In my Blakey in year. In my Blakey in year. In my Blakey in year. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think you won them over. Yeah. <laughs>
So who has a question? Thank you so Hi. much for um, everything you've given to the world. Oh, thank you. In this time of suffering that our world is experiencing, especially in the Middle East and generally in everyone's mind, how do you bring the, the artistic impulse that we individually all have to the communal, to the collective, to, to make beauty? I'm not a very political artist. I'm really sort of a romantic artist. My interior landscape is not political. I'm more of a, I would like to say, I'm more of a humanist. I care about people. I'm not a common artist, but I am a very common person. But I think I could give a better answer by, if you would like, if you don't have an objection, to recite to you the words that I had such difficulty in Central Park in 1993. I wrote these words in 19, around in 1986, 87, because I was in the kitchen in Michigan. I was peeling potatoes, and I was a bit pregnant too, and I was peeling potatoes. And Fred came into the, Fred was my husband, he came into the kitchen and he said, Trisha. And I said, yeah. And I was like, and he said, people have the power, write it. <laughs> and so I did. But Fred was beautifully articulate, politically articulate. He, he gave me the inspiration and the, the words to build, a, to build my, the lyrics on. And it goes like this. I was dreaming in my dreaming of an aspect bright and fair. And my sleeping, it was broken, but my dream, it lingered near in the form of shining valleys where the pure air rarefied and my senses newly opened and I awakened to the cry that the people have the power to redeem the work of fools upon the meek the graces shower. It's decreed the people rule and vengeful aspects became suspect and bending low as if to hear and the armies ceased advancing because the people had their ear and the shepherds and the soldiers lay beneath the stars exchanging visions laying arms to waste in the dust in the form of shining valleys where the pure air rarefied and my senses newly opened and I awakened to the cry, I was dreaming in my dreaming. God knows a pure view. And as I surrender into my sleeping, I commit my dream to you that the people have the power to redeem the work of fools. Upon the meek, the graces shower. It's decreed the people rule. And I believe everything we dream can come to pass through our union. We can turn the world around 
We can turn the Earth's revolution, for the people have the power to dream, to vote, to strike, to rule, to wrestle the world from fools. The people have the power. The people have the power. Thank you, everybody.